Okay. Yesterday, uh, you heard me talk about uh, the perspective that a connected world is never been more relevant than it is today, uh, that our value proposition uh, is extremely relevant, if not more so, but that the execution of that value proposition is something that we need to re reconsider. And so I showed you a, a new identity for the, uh, the organization, but I think one of the things that is really important is how we look at um, what collaboration could look like on a global level moving forward and how that's evolving and what we as an agency can do operationally and how we think about supporting our clients' business, what that looks like moving forward. Uh, about six years ago, uh, when I was client-side at a brand called Smashburger, uh, I had a chance to meet our next speaker, who at the time was doing something that was pretty revolutionary in, in, the, uh, in the industry, and that was launching the entire concept of crowdsourcing with an agency called Victors and Spoils. Uh, and John and I have maintained contact over the years, and as I told you, Throughout the process of this new gig, I've been asking a lot of people opinion within the network, and I've also spoken to some people outside of the network who I think bring an incredibly uh, powerful um, perspective and a global one as well. So um, um, John Windsor is uh, going to take the stage here. He's a founder of Speakeasy Guild, which is John's newest uh, uh, initiative. He's a leading thinker, advisor, and entrepreneur building platforms in the marketing, media, and innovation industries. He's known for his strategic marketing and product innovation work based on collaboration, co-creation, open innovation, and crowdsourcing. And today, John's going to be talking about how to apply platform thinking to your agency's business model. Mr. John Thanks. Windsor. Thanks. Thank, thanks for having me. Uh, just to start, you know, I, I've been in the agency business for a bit, but I've also been in the media business. I, I had a magazine publishing company for 15 years. But before that, I kind of think I, I was really most influenced by some experiences I had when I was working in my dad's newspaper. And I thought a lot about, I don't know, I think it, it was my orientation to, I mean, I love agency work and I love the creative product. I love the strategy product, but I've always been fascinated by the business model that underlies it all. How, how does it all work? And I think that the experience that, that was probably most uh, appropriate for me, or, or at least most inspirational for me, was <clears throat> when I was 11 and 12, my job was to actually carry the lead bars up the stairs from the, in the newspaper to put it in the linotype melting pot. Do you, does anybody remember what a linotype was? Right? Like it, it would actually, you know, a typewriter that would take lead and, and put it onto these, we'd put it onto these big brass tables and these wonderful guys, typesetters, would actually arrange the letters and get the newspaper ready every day. And, and I admired those guys so much. I thought it was super cool that I got to do it and they had ink below their fingernails and they'd been doing it for all grizzly guys. And one guy, you know, one day some guy when I was 11 said, we are the greatest craftsmen in media. Like this will never go away. We are the most important people. Right? And, and so for me, like, that's been my history of like, I've been worked with a lot of dead industries, right? Like, I got, to, I got the chance to work in the newspaper business. And, you know, back then in Canton, Illinois, there was no such thing as an ad agency. So, you know, I, when I was in high school, I would actually go and, you know, go down to Ludlum's uh, supermarket with my, you know, ad that I'd created myself in, you know, our, our advertising room with, you know, wax and, and, and sticky paper and, and, you know, copy machine and run out there and, and show them and decide what price the beef was going to be. So that was my first kind of, uh, you know, introduction to advertising. Um, I got in the, after college, I got in the magazine publishing business. I started a magazine called uh, Sports and Fitness Publishing, or that was the name of the company, Rocky Mountain Sports, and had the good fortune of <clears throat> buying a magazine out of bankruptcy called Women's Sports and Fitness. And it was so crazy. It was 1989, and, you know, 
there was only one advertiser that would put a woman in an ad doing sports, and it was Nike. Um, everybody else would say, oh, women, they'll never do sports. It'll never happen. So I had the good fortune of growing that with a bunch of other magazines and selling that to Connie Nost, and it was a great experience. But again, being an industry that essentially got disrupted by a lot of new technology. So, so that's kind of been my, been my, my history, and I'll, I'll share some of the things I've learned in the last few years on kind of what John talked about on collaboration and openness and, and new, new ways of thinking. So I kind of want to just be provocative. I, I like to be provocative. I think, you know, all of us struggle. I, I, I got a chance to be at Crispin when we were uh, 40 people at Crisp, uh, at, from Crispin and 14 of us from Radar when we merged the companies. And uh, we went to 750 in, in Boulder in two years. Now Boulder, Crispin is about 150, maybe 175. So it's kind of had the full arc of you know, growth, explosion, and, and then change. So, um, you know, I don't think this is, this is anything different than every other industry and every other business that, that has to, you know, that we look at. There's a guy, through the Victors and Spoils experience, I've gotten a chance to hang, a lot, hang out a lot with MIT and, and Harvard guys. And one of the guys I really love is this guy, Eric Von Hippel. And his, you know, his, he wrote a book called The Democratization of Innovation back in 1989, which was kind of the precursor of open systems and crowdsourcing. But I love this quote from him. Companies built on uh, states, uh, immovable, uneducable uh, systems will find themselves on the dustbin of, of uh, history. So I started thinking about this stuff because essentially what transpired was that I had a magazine and women's sports and fitness, right? And, and it was bankrupt, and I was trying to figure out how do I make money at women's sports and fitness. I noticed that the women that were readers for our, one of the facts I found in our research was the women that read, read women's sports and fitness were 12 times as likely to tell somebody about a new product than the reader of a shape or a self. And so we knew we had early adoptive consumers that we could, we could actually go out. They were the yoga instructors to the yoga class. The problem was is when we worked with brands, we knew brands had this much money to start with, right? And by the time everybody got a piece of it along the, the value chain, we got a little drip for a full-page ad in women's sports and fitness. And so I thought a lot about if we have these early adoptive consumers, like women who really, really knew what was going on and influencing people, why couldn't we take those, the, those women, put them at the top of the funnel, and then advise companies on what to do and how to create products, mostly on the product innovation side, not much on the marketing. That turned out to be a really good business called, called Radar Communications. Um, so we started with Radar, and that's when I wrote Beyond the Brand and came up with the idea of co-creation. Um, I was the first person to write about that back in 2002. Um, that led to Spark and Flipped, and then I wrote a, a book with uh, Alex Bogusky called Baked In, creating businesses and, and, and products that market themselves. And had this great fortune of, I've always been in Boulder, I've been diehard, you know, athlete, climber, um, and never wanted to leave. And fortunately, Alex Bogusky came to, to Boulder, and we connected there. And we did this project called, who remembers that project we did at Crispin? We decided to crowdsource creative for Brahmo electric motorcycles. It caused quite a stir in the industry, really pissed everybody off. Like, how could the agency of the creative agency of the decade crowdsource content for a client? Um, but we, you know, Alex and I both were trying to figure out what are new ways to work, what are new, new systems to work. Pictures and Spoils is an incredible experience. Um, I was shocked how quickly that took off. I think it was just a combination of ad agency and, you know, and crowdsourcing. You know, it's just such diametrically opposed. I remember when we started, I would go to places like Pratt, in New York, and people would throw things at me on stage. And 
what was interesting to me, it was not, even, it was not the students, right? It was the 55-year-old guys, the, the guys my age who had their own little agency who were pissed that all of a sudden there was an open market that allowed other people to do the work. And my point on stage was always like, hey, you guys are part of the problem. You have a five-person shop. You teach all these students, but you don't employ them. And so you're setting up all these competitors. They all need jobs. So they're going to these open platforms to compete against you, and it's kind of over. You can't charge $40,000 for corporate identity anymore when people with the same equipment and the same technology and just as many cycles can do it for 10 times cheaper. So, so that's been kind of the journey, and lately I just launched a, uh, a company called Speakeasy, which I'll talk a little bit about in this kind of you know, journey on, on trying to evolve business systems, business models, and embrace open systems. Along the way, one of the most fascinating experiences has been Harvard came to me. I did a deal with Victors and Spoils. I sold majority to Havas. And it was such an interesting thing. We weren't for sale. Um, I wasn't really interested in selling. But who knows David Jones? Anybody heard of David Jones? David's a really, really amazing guy. I had one, about a year into to doing Victors and Spoils, the guy who helped me finance the company Scott Beck suggested we go meet with all the CEOs of all the holding companies. So we went around and met with everybody and to see how to open systems. Is it a challenge to close systems? How's that dialogue? It was obviously super scary for a lot of people. Um, and they, they, you know, had a, we had a really good dialogue, but I didn't know who David was. Um, I met David at TED, and, and he came, you know, sauntering over, as always he does. He's a really confident guy. And he said, ah, it's really awesome. You're throwing, you know, you're throwing rocks at the glass houses of the holding companies. What happens if I give you the keys to Havas and you help me change the whole, all of Havas into an open system? So that seemed like a really, really cool project. And, and uh, we went on a two-year journey together to try to do that, only to be, you know, at, at every move to be kind of blocked by French bureaucracies and, you know, and, and not just weird games, politics, so we didn't succeed as much as we could have. Victors and Spoils is still around. I, I own a bunch of it still, and I'm still chairman. But, you know, as over time, Havas has turned it into a much more traditional offering. Um, and David, David left, and once David left Havas, it was obvious that the idea of innovating, they were going to try to exploit their current business model as long as they could. So um, hence launching Speakeasy. So I'll talk a little bit about not just what we've learned, um, but also what, what I've learned from Harvard. Harvard did, during that time, they did two case studies, one on, and I encourage you guys to look at them because I think they're interesting for the marketing business but, and advertising business, but one on what it means to be born open. It kind of tells the, it's a multimedia case study and tells the, with a lot of video, tells the, the, the journey of BNS, but also can an open system influence an old closed system. There's lots of great video of French, you know, executives really pissed off. In fact, uh, Mercedes Derza, one of the executives from BETC, called me the sorcerer's apprentice, opening the Pandora's box that will ruin the industry. So I was quite pleased with that. I think that that's, you know, for French, French advertising, they're always good at telling a great story. So here's some things I've been, you know, I've been learning lately. Um, I've been really intri intrigued by this journey of going from this idea of co-creation to Jeff Howe and I worked on a book called, called Crowdsourcing back in... 2006, um, and then how it's marched from, you know, more open systems. Open innovation is, is a big deal and has been a big deal for a while. Now all the talk is about platforms. A couple of really interesting books that are worth reading. One's called Platform Revolution, and another one's called Platform Scale, um, both by a guy by the name from MIT, Sangeet Chandra. 
um, really interesting learnings. Um, so anyway, let's go. So I also work, who knows Jerry Wind? Does Jerry, Jerry Wind's at Wharton? It's another really great book. He just wrote a book called, he's really kind of the, the best academic in the advertising business, wrote a book called Beyond Advertising, which is really worth looking at. It's like advertising 2020, what needs to happen in the industry. But he wrote another book called Network Imperative recently, and he came up with this. And I think this is a super interesting reason why it, all of us should think about being a more open system. So this is, this, these are numbers from Pricewaterhouse, and it looks at 1,500 publicly held companies and the value that they have compared to revenue. So the public, public market value, right? So asset builders are worth one-time sales. Service providers, which are us as agencies, right? Two-time sales. Technology creators are worth four-time sales, but network orchestrators are worth eight-time sales. So that's the question I always have you know, to people, is how do you move where you are to where you can be? How do you move to the upper left, or sorry, to the upper right-hand quadrant? I think there's an opportunity to do that. I don't think you have to change your whole system to be a platform, but there are ways to use platforms to accelerate and be more profitable. There was a great thing uh, that Thomas Friedman wrote about a couple weeks ago in the context of politics, you know, Trump versus Clinton, called wall people versus, versus uh, web people. And he talked about wall people, obviously, you know, building walls, protect the territory, you know, go back, exploit the current resources, whereas web people being open, looking at new opportunities, looking at great things like, you know, Instagram, what does that mean? How do, how do, how do individuals start creating media? I mean, I think all of us in this industry, right, are, are not only at threat by individuals, influencers that create their own media and connect with brands, but then we've got media companies that are going right to brands and saying, well, you know, my, my buddy uh, Andrew Keller went to Facebook, right, and now he's in charge of their Facebook agency, and essentially they're doing work for free for brands. So there are all these existential threats. So where do you find yourself? How do you become the, the best you can be, and, and how does your business model work? How can you go from being a wall brand to a, to a web brand or a wall agency to a web agency? For me, it, it really is moving from things like going from a brand platform to brand as a platform, right? I think you see this movement um, there, and I'll talk about a brand that we're working with called Local Motors that is really kind of figuring this out at the very edges of technology. But I, that's an important thing. Instead of a statement, that what you're about and what you're doing and how you project that into the world, how do you create a platform that allows a lot of different participants to play in? I think there are brands out there that we look at as strong brands but have the ability to kind of be that, right? Be, be a platform. An obvious one that, that to me, just in my own, my own experience as a climber, had that dialed several years ago and then kind of let, it, let, that, you know, let that wither was Patagonia. Patagonia used to have a thing called the guide service. and It was a free service for any consumer. It could call an 800 number and say, I'm going to go to uh, Peru to go on a hike. What should I take? They would send you lists of things, how to buy it. it could, some of it could be there. Some of it could be somebody else. But it was kind of a trusted source, a matching source of not only their own stuff, but also other things in the, in the industry, so other, other competitor stuff. Pipeline businesses to platform businesses. Um, for me, I think what's interesting about agencies, right, is, is and I've, I've been ar arguing a lot with Sangeet lately about, uh, one of the things I found interesting about the magazine business is the magazine business is a classic platform, right? Like in the old magazine world, pre-digital, it was, my job as a publisher was, was to build a community table and then to invite everybody to it, the advertiser, the reader, the photographer, the editor, and then every, every month all that great dialogue would get pushed into the pages 
of the, of the magazine, kind of a, a click in time of what was happening in the industry. I think agencies are a lot the same, right? Our job really is a matching service, right? Like brands come to us to say, oh, your agency is great, has great creatives, has great, has great strategy. I'm going to match, right? I want to match with the best. So, so the job of an agency really is to be a matching service. The question is, how much does that cost, right? One of the things that I <clears throat> discovered at, at Havas when I was there is we, David and I did an analysis. If, if somebody comes to Havas with a dollar, a client comes with a dollar, how much of that dollar goes to the bureaucracy of matching the client? How much of it goes to work? Does anybody have any ideas? So, what's that? 75 to 80%. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, tons of C-level guys and offices all over the world and, you know, expanding in different places. So 20 to 25 cents went to the work. That's just not a successful formula, right? That's just not aligned with the client. I think a lot about it, in, you know, in other industries, right? You think about it in, the, in an industry like transportation and taxis, right? If we're all standing on the corner of 75th and, and Park and we want to go from point A to point B, well, in the old days, taxis, there had to be enough taxis on the street to serendipitously show up in, in front of us. But that had to include the cost of the taxicab salary, the driver's salary, the, you know, the mechanic, the dispatcher, the owner, the taxi authority. So 80 cents of every dollar in a taxi ride is really to go support the matching capacity or the matching, the matching function. When Uber comes along, you know, they say, oh, you guys want to go from point A to point B, and look at all these people already going from point A to point B, and they might want to make some extra money, so we'll just create some thin and open software to do that. So really going from an 80-20 to a 20-80, and I think that's what's happening in a lot of cases. So from resource control to resource orchestration, I think this is a big issue as well. You know, one of the things that, that um, you know, we experienced a lot with at Crispin and at, at uh, Havas, especially, you know, when I was trying to figure out how to manage VNS in the context of Havas, it was all about how do you control the resources, right? How do you get the right people and control the number of you know, FTEs on a project? To me, it's all, the, the, new, the new world's all about orchestration. How do I get the right people on the right project at the right time, but maybe not have the holding cost? So, and then from internal optimization to external in, uh, interaction. It was interesting, I, I think, you know, in a really roundabout way, Miles Nadal was ahead of his time. It was also that he didn't demand much profitability out of places like Crispin. So Crispin was very, very unprofitable, not unprofitable, but small profits. And I think, it, to me, that's why MDCs always overperformed from a creative standpoint, because they've never really demand, pro demanded profitability. If you look at their... You know, if you look at their balance sheet, they have a big, big net retain, uh, negative retained earnings. Last time I looked, it was $750 million. So they've been running in a deficit for a long, long time, which allowed them to really over-resource creatively and strategically. Um, for me, the future is not about those holding costs. It's about how do, you, how do you interact, how do you create these interactions and make them successful. I think one of the advantages for, for agencies now is that in this world of abundance, when there's so much supply, everybody can create a photo to go up on Instagram. It's really the curation, it's really the scarcity that's the value, right? When the execution becomes commoditized, like who knows the brand the best? How can I help that brand go forward? How can I help them make sure that the, the brand's consistent? So 
The other thing is, instead of looking at brand as having brand value, it's a really a focus on brand as an ecosystem. Who can create the, e the best ecosystem? What we're seeing that in technology, right? We've got, you've got the Apple ecosystem and the Google ecosystem and the Microsoft ecosystem, and what are the partners that make that valuable? It's not that the phone, the iPhone, is really valuable. It's that the iTunes store and the, and the App Store has created such value by all these third-party partners that there's, there's a value in the ecosystem of iPhone that makes it not only more valuable, but also stickier, right? I, I, somebody asked me if I would you know, trade my iPhone for an Android not too long ago, and I, I just can't do with all the apps that I'm so used to doing. I'm so acculturated in that ecosystem. So, so how do you think as a brand, as an ecosystem, how do you think of your agency as creating an ecosystem that's really powerful? Um, so what do brands as a platform look like? So this is a company we work with uh, called Local Motors. And really, really visionary leader. They're trying to disrupt the car business. They crowdsource the design and then 3D print cars. Um, and it's such a fantastical, it's almost hard to believe when you, when you stand there in front of these huge printers and you watch a, a, a car printed. Um, they really were renowned because a few years ago, Jay Rogers, their leader, went to the car show. Everybody else brought the cars. And Jay brought a big old printer, and in 30 hours, he printed a car and drove it away. So it totally shook up the, the industry. Right now, they're in the middle of a, a, big, a big raise to kind of take the next step. So um, one of the cars they printed was this thing called the Strati. It's an NEV, but they're, they're, the, there's a roadmap for uh, highway cars work on right now. So as you can see, the chassis is printed in one piece. Um, we're also, at, when, in working with them, there are a bunch of other people that are exploring 3D printing, so a bunch of stuff going on at Airbus right now with printing scanium and titanium in big, in big blocks. So lots of really, really cool stuff that's really disruptive for the car industry, right, for the auto industry. But one of the things that's super interesting about the journey with Local Motors is that, you know, so Local Motors has used a crowd, right, to, to design things, and then these things called micro factories, and to, so it's a very small factory to, to print these cars. But doing this, and because they did it in the transportation industry, all of a sudden, all these other, all these other companies came along to want to be involved with their system. So Airbus has recently come along, and they've asked local motors to actually, can, can you uh, crowd, crowdsource the design of drones and then 3D print drones? So we're in the middle of doing that. GE, um, which I'll talk about in a second, um, this home appliance project, and now GE's had such success that they're going to put an incident of the local motors platform, which is called Forth, in every division across, across the globe, and also selling a, a reseller agreement to allow GE to resell the, the, the platform, the community, and the, and the micro factory called Forth. But most interesting, the thing that really has blown me away about the experience of working with local motors and working with GE is this. So, you know, the story goes that, that um, Beth Comstock made an investment in Quirky, Right? Does everybody remember Quirky? It was a crowd, you know, uh, kind of an open social uh, innovation platform. It, it blew up in a big way. I think they'd raised $135 million and it went out of business. So Beth was trying to, had made a big commitment to open and was trying to figure out how, how do I do that? So they, she connected with Jay at Local Motors and they came together using uh, Local Motors crowd and, and micro factory philosophy and reskinned it, this white label of the, this is the white label of, of the fourth platform from Local Motors. The goal was, that the tension was, is that, is that in the appliance division of 
GE, it took three years to do a new appliance, right? It's all the regular reasons, right? You've got a machinery that can only do 500,000 units, and you've got an infrastructure and a bureaucracy that has to push things through these retailers, and a lot of overhead that has to be covered, right? So best challenge was, could you take something that's taking three years to do and do, it, do a new innovation every month? It was just super audacious idea through this open platform. So nobody knew if that could happen, but in the fourth month, something really interesting happened. A person from the platform came up, just a crowd member, came up with the idea of a pizza oven, a, mo a monogram pizza oven that could slide in, right? Just like a, an appliance, whereas most pizza ovens are put together handmade, beautiful, but not very scalable. The platform, the first build guys paid the, the crowd member $10,000, put another challenge out to design that pizza oven. Two weeks later, somebody won that for $20,000 went into the micro factory, built a prototype in a week, took a video, put the video up on Indiegogo, and a month later, two and a half million dollars worth of, worth of pizza ovens were sold, which they then built in the micro factory and shipped to consumers. So it's totally changed the way GE works. Now there's a new innovation coming out every month out of, out of uh, first build. And interestingly, um, GE sold the, the appliance division to hire, and one of the reasons they paid so much for it, they said, is because of the new innovation engine. So I think we'll see this a lot in a lot of different places. I and mean, this is just the first of a new way of doing product innovations, but I think the same thing is going to affect the marketing and media world. This is just an example of the, of the platform. Super simple platforms, but there's so much surplus, right? There's so many people that say, wow, $10,000 to, de to design an appliance? I'm up for that. Why not? You know, let's, let's try it. And same thing we found with the drone project. In a month, we got 450 designs across the world. But Airbus put up $50,000 for drone design. A guy in Russia who's a mechanical engineer, really smart guy, 50 grand twice his annual income for a month's worth of work. So lots of, lots of interesting stuff going on. Um, what do agencies look like as a platform? We started thinking about that back at Victors and Spoils when we started. Could we be an agency based on crowdsourcing principles, so have this really flexible workforce? Um, in the first week, we had, you know, we announced, and, and we, the, in the New York Times, Stuart Elliott was nice enough to write an article. That night, Dish uh, Network gave us all their, um, all their television uh, advertising. The next morning, we had 700 people on the platform. And the interesting thing is that three-quarters of the people that signed up for the platform were people that worked in other agencies. So it was all the cognitive surplus. In, in fact, the guys at Crispin called me soon after and said, you can't, you, know, you can't work with anybody from Crispin. And our point of view was, but that's between you and your employees. Like that's, you know, if you want to cut your employees off from doing stuff at night, that's totally cool. We, but, you know, you just have to, you have to have a discussion with them, not with us. So we, we've been playing or we played a lot, you know, this idea of power to the brand and power to the people kind of open strategy, strategy hack, ad hack, and, and VNS advertising. How do we go faster and do things in an interesting way? One of the things we did along the way was a, a spot by, um, that we did for, or not a spot, but a project we did for Harley-Davidson. Who, who remembers when we won the Harley-Davidson business? Does everybody know that story? So what happened was that Harley had announced, I think it was an ad age, or maybe it was an ad week, that they were going to leave Carmichael Lynch after, what, 32 years? Was that what? Yeah, 32 years. And they are going to have a pitch. And so I went out to coffee with my, with my partner, Evan Fry, and, and we said, well, geez, you know, we've got 7,000 people in our crowd, and why don't we just write, you know, we'll, I'll just write a blog post and say, hey, we'll put $10,000 of our own money up. 
you know, Mark Hans Ricker was the CMO, and I, I, I wrote a note to Mark this game publicly on my blog, you know, hey, Mark, you know, have a good time with your pitch, you know, great dinners from the agencies, really fun tissue sessions. As you do that, I'm putting 10,000 bucks of my own money up. I got 7,000 people in the crowd working on it. Give me a call if you want to see anything. So I put, a, I put a tweet out an hour later. An hour later, Mark Hans Ricker tweeted me back, um, and we went to see him the next week, and we won, we won the business. So, but it was just that ability to use that cognitive surplus and put a little investment in to doing it. I, at Crispin, we would spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on pitches sometimes. So it was really a way to go fast, and in sense, we'd done a bunch of stuff like that. But one of the projects that came out, one of the things I loved about Mark Hans Ricker was he kept saying, how do I get my passionate fans to be a part of the creation of my media? So here, here's the thing we came up with for them called Fan Machine. Have, have you guys seen this, this video? Some, some of you have. Facebook fans, brands are cuckoo for collecting them. But what are they actually doing with them? We believe that Facebook fans can do more than just like things. We believe they can think, collaborate, and contribute to the brands they love. So we created Fan Machine, the first app that allows brands to turn their Facebook page into a virtual creative department, making their fans central to the advertising process. And our client, Harley-Davidson, helped us launch it enlisting their fans to develop a new campaign. How did it work? Harley downloaded the Fan Machine app and walked through a step-by-step -step process that allowed them to describe the project, set the awards, determine the submission window, and push the brief live. Then their fans got busy, submitting ideas, voting other ideas up or down, and sharing their entries on their own Facebook walls. While they did that, we tracked the brief, moderated the entries, collected fan data, and reported it all back to Harley. 222 ideas and 8,193 votes later, an idea from Harold Chase, a Harley fan from Tukwila, Washington, rose to the top. Harley fans loved it, the client loved it, and we crafted and produced it. So what did Harley walk away with? An idea they could really use. An ad campaign by their fans, for their fans, that's still running today. Fan Machine. It's one part ideation engine, one part social media platform, and one part ad agency. And the whole thing works like a machine. So that was, that was back in the fall of 2011, so a long time ago now. But certainly, that was definitely the most profitable thing we ever did at BNS, my tenure at BNS, because there was this—you know—nobody knew how to build software. Nobody knew how to, at the time, integrate that software onto face, you know, Facebook. Um, nobody knew how to use fans to create things, um, so it was pretty lightweight. We also tried to innovate because we did all the—you know—we didn't use any models. We used only riders. Recruited everybody on Twitter. Um, you know, used a really small production shop that were that were Harley riders out of Austin instead of kind of the LA thing. So um, we also, when we were at, at VNS2, we also were trying to figure out how do we, you know, one of my big goals at VNS was how do we break our own system? Like how do I do things in small ways to challenge our internal culture? Because one of the things, as we all know, we get going and, you know, whatever industry you're in, you get proud about what you're doing and you create systems and your own bureaucracies. 
So my goal as the, as the leader and the leader of the culture was how do I continue to keep people a little off-centered? How do we challenge things? And one of our challenges was because we used the word crowdsourcing, everybody thought we were really cheap. And so how do we, we got all these offers to, or all these clients coming to us for, you know, fifty to $75,000 projects, which we really couldn't afford to do. So we decided to come up with this thing called Pearl Street Marketplace. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a man named Buck. Had a small non-profit and some decent enough luck. But he wanted to expand, wanted to do it properly, so he could provide inner cities with fresh beets and broccoli. But while Buck could dig, plant, water, and harvest, his marketing skills were what polite folk would call modest. He needed a little branding, didn't have a big budget, and if he wanted this to work, well, he just couldn't fudge it. Meanwhile, in a coffee shop, there was a guy named Gabe, a creative type looking for work, trying to get paid. Under normal circumstances, these two would never meet. Gabe wore flannels and skinny jeans. Buck didn't even tweet. Skinny chai, half-calf, soy macchiato, no whip with caramel drizzle and agave nectar. But Buck's dream wasn't dead, no coupe de grace, because he typed in the words Pearl Street Creative Market. It's where marketers meet creatives to get her done. Pearl Street Creative Marketplace, doggone. Buck was intrigued like a bull during the rut. He clicked submit a project and said, fire it on up. Gabe saw it and was interested and responded to Buck. Buck liked what he saw and the deal was struck. A little while later, there was new branding and a logo. Buck was real happy and Gabe was all YOLO. In fact, Buck was so proud he done spread the word. And in no time at all, other folks had heard. Jimmy needed a website, Chrissy needed brochures, and creatives were jumping to the chance to help entrepreneurs. It was a win-win like birds eating bugs off cows. Businesses post opportunities the creatives can browse. So if it's a big job, a small job, or whatever may be the case, just head on over to Pearl Street Creative Market So that was just really an experiment, but we were, we were concerned with, you know, getting calls all the time from nonprofits saying, hey, I've got this nonprofit, could you do stuff for free, right? So, so our point was like, wow, this could be a really way, great way for us to see new talent and to connect that talent to projects, and we don't get involved, we just kind of helped out. So that really spurred this new project that I'm working on um, called, called Speakeasy, and Speakeasy's idea is really to take it further, and I, I'm always interested in refining things down and down and down, so... Really, it's taking the core tenants that Alex and I worked at on Bramo, and then I worked at at Victor's and Spoils, but Speakeasy is essentially, we don't do any of the work, we only do the matching. So that's what we're really interested in. Kind of, we call it kind of a, a talent API. Um, so Speakeasy is an efficient way to match the best talent to task using a create, uh, curated pool of top subject, subject matter, matter experts. We've got a crowd of folks that can do stuff for brands or for agencies. And I think the other thing we've realized is that back you know, when we started VNS, we were trying to be compete against agencies because we felt like, you know, kind of be disintermediative because we felt like nobody knew if is open system our open systems going to win or a closed system's going to win. But I think now in the world of Airbnb and Uber, we kind of all know that open systems are a really efficient way to build a business. Um, so we're a platform that builds custom teams and talent to take on strategic consulting and project work all without overhead and added expense. Our, our idea is that there are a lot of small projects that clients have that agencies, we couldn't ever do at VNS. 
but you know the the seven thousand or ten thousand dollar strategic project or the twenty thousand dollar you know creative ideation project, and we're just essentially not doing the work, just matching them with teams. One of the things I'm finding interestingly, getting a chance to play at the global level as the chief innovation officer at Havas, is that now and, and getting to know a lot of great world class talent. So many people are going out and starting their own little shops, right? They're really good at doing what they do best, that strategy and creative. They're not very good at new business. So they're super hungry to do work, and it's just trying to figure out a, a good matching system to help them do that. So agencies and, and clients that need work, small work, and then you know, the best freelancers, and then some, uh, a, a, a system much like Uber to rate each, each side of the system. So kind of we're, our real focus is curation. We're aggregating category expert, peer-to-client -peer, peer reviews, and network ratings um, to help us identify the best people um, for any type of need quickly. So and what we're seeing is a lot of really interesting ways that's, that's coming to fore. So how we work, you know, just typical thing of getting a request, identifying the talent, facilitating the team, and then letting all parties review, but doing it really quickly. We're getting a lot of calls to say, I can't get this, you know, I can't, crack this creatively or I can't figure out the, the strategy. I need somebody in the next three days and crank on it for a couple days. So no more RFPs, no more you know, typical way to, to work. Um, we've been around for five, five months and it's going pretty well. We're, we've grown a ton and have lots of really interesting projects. We're doing some for um, agency folks like you know, we're working with David Jones at you and Mr. Jones and some of his projects and then Project Worldwide, um, Brian Martin and those guys. One of the things that I find so interesting, kind of as, a, as, as another side note, is Tongle. Who knows the platform Tongle, right? Execution of video, right? So they're, they're interesting in that they've been calling us pretty much every week because they're getting invited into pitches every, every week now. So it used to be that they would just do the execution of video, and now clients are going to them to say, hey, you know, a car company last week asked them to be in a pitch. So they, they are coming to us because they don't have creative or they don't have strategic talent. So they're looking for, hey, can a strategist write a creative brief for us to put on the platform? We need help with that. Um, so just another competitive set that, that agencies, I think, traditionally wouldn't think of Tongle as somebody that clients are inviting in to be in, in pitches, creative pitches. Now, they haven't won one yet, but my estimation is sooner or later that that's just, that'll just happen, right? Um, so... I wanted to kind of finish with things that I think that you can do, um, things that I think about, things that I tried to do at Havas that didn't work. And I think you guys are super uniquely positioned because of the organization you're in, right? This, this represents, essentially, you guys are a platform. Like this, this organization is a kind of a, you know, confederation of, of, of folks that want to do work together and solve bigger problems than they can. And I think that's a really, really good place to start you guys have a huge advantage than, say, the holding companies. And some of the struggles that I had at the holding companies, you can kind of get around. So a few of the things that, that I've been thinking about um, over the last few years and, and hopefully might help you as you think about things. So first of all, change the mental model, right? I think that one of the things I, I've found over the years is I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in you know, meetings in different parts of my career, you know, whether it was in the magazine a magazine business I'd be at Hearst or someplace like that and they're like, magazines will never die. You know, there's always, you know, there's always somebody at some place, whether it's, you know, the, the, the a Mercedes Erza who, who says that the, the way that the world works right now is going to be the way it's going to work in the future. And as we see every day, right, it changes. It doesn't matter what industry you're in or what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're a car company, 
you know, the big three are under existential threat right now because of things like 3D printing and rideshare and autonomous cars. It's radically changing. The world's going to change. So how do we change our mental model to say, what do we do really, really well, and how do we, and how do we create networks to, and open systems to solve other kinds of problems and not get stuck in the old way of thinking? One of the things that I found at Havas, which was super interesting, is that Dave and I had this vision of turning Havas, the 20,000 employees, into a massive crowd, right? So, and one of the things I was intrigued by, and so was David, was the idea of going to a client and say, no, no, it's not just this team in Paris that's going to work for you. We're actually putting, putting, you know, deploying 20,000 people on your business, Peugeot or you know, GSK, whoever. So you know, we had the system, we had the buy-in, we had the senior leadership system. Creatives across the globe were psyched, right? There was a, you know, there, there'd be a kid in Shanghai who would say, hell yeah, I want to work on a car brief in, out of New York. That's awesome. The problem was is the incentive structure for the CEOs, you know, Havas is not a, a holding company. It's a federation of independent states. And each of those CEOs is highly incentivized on, on EBIT, which is awesome to drive short-term profit, but it doesn't do anything to drive innovation. And so we came up with a product called Havas Crowd. We could not scale it. And it was because the CEO in Shanghai didn't want his 22-year-old creative to work at night on anything else, even though he was, right? That's just a fact. Creative people want to be creative or strategists want to do strategy, so they're working on off projects at night. Why not take, take that and use it as part of let's be successful as a Voss instead of fighting about, no, no, it's only my stuff. But that's something that we just couldn't overcome as an organization. I couldn't do it. David couldn't even do it as a CEO of the organization. There was so much legacy, bureaucracy, infighting, and it all came down to me to the way that the local CEOs were incentivized. So I think one of the things to, to encourage you guys as a group and to encourage you guys individually in, in agencies, how do you think about incentivizing your teams, your management team, right, and, and you guys as a group to use open systems, to share, to be a part of the new kind of sharing, open, collaborative platform economy? Change your resource, resource approach. I and mean, we think about this all the time, right? I, one of the things that I thought was so interesting at Crispin is not only were we growing so exponentially from 55 of us to 750 of us, we had 60% turnover in, in our creative department annually. So it was just horrible. I mean, it, you know, if you really want to be honest about it, right, it was a crowdsourced company. Like we, we would do a gangbang. We would do, you know, there were only seven creative directors and the rest was on the what we called the factory floor, and a brief would go into the factory floor, and everybody would scramble. It was an interesting brief. Everybody would run to that side of the ship. Nobody would get the work done they were supposed to do. So it was really kind of an internally crowdsourced team, especially when you have 60% turnover, and you've got new faces in and out of there all the time. So I, I think, you know, when you think about the, the future, like, how can you use open systems? How can you bring in people? One of the things that we've overcome in, 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 at VNS is really focused on being able being focused on the question from a client and not the answer. Instead of saying, when a client says, you know, can you do this? Instead of saying, absolutely, and this is my experience at Crispin, I mean, I did it, right? We'd say, oh yeah, VW, we can do that. We can do mobile, right? Back in the day, run back and say, who the hell do we know that does mobile? We'll get somebody to do mobile, right? Instead of saying to the client, that's a great question. Let's together go out and find the best talent in the world. We know your brand, We'll curate it. We'll make sure it's on brand and on brief, but let's go find the best talent as these things change so much. So really changing it from always having the right answer to always helping make sure that the questions are refined in a way 
that makes the brand successful. You know, that one incident actually, in my estimation, is why Crispin lost, lost, lost Volkswagen, right? Because we did a proposal, we brought them the proposal, and Tim Ellis pulled out a, a proposal from the exact same team that we were going to charge five times as much to work with, and Tim just pulled it and said, no, no, I talked to those guys already, and they're five times less than what you guys want to charge. So definitely a, an erosion of trust. And then la lastly, just think about new partners. Um, we've been trying to think about that a lot lately. Um, you know, a couple that I find really interesting and that are, that are worth looking at. Um, so who knows Wonder, right? Does anybody know Wonder? I, I was with the guys from this uh, strategy firm called Blood, who's part of you and Mr. Jones. So I haven't played with Wonder yet, but it's amazing. So um, Drew, the guy who runs um, Blood, says he uses Wonder. It's $29 for a 1,000-word uh, answer to any question by, ac by academics in 12 hours, right? So essentially what he says, he's like, hey, look, I'm going to meet with Jonathan at Airbnb. I'm in London. I just type up 12 questions or 10 questions, right? I hit send to Wonder. When I land in LA, there are 12,000 words of, you know, what do you know about Airbnb? What are, what's open systems? What's the history of Jonathan? Like, it's amazing. I don't know how it works, but it seems kind of cool. So the other one that's super interesting that's intriguing to me right now is called Partnered, right? Does anybody know Partnered? Essentially, Partnered has created a, a crowd of 1,200 technology companies, and they're, they're, letting, they're letting brands and agencies launch unlimited briefs. So the use case is Coke launches a brief and Tinder you know, and a bunch of other technology companies say, oh, that's a cool brief. We'll work directly with Coke. So it's really cutting out, out the intermediary. I, I, there's a big way for agencies to play, to stay on brand and on brief. But one of the frustrations, Coke used to, you know, wait for Wyden to come with an idea to, hey, let's work on Tinder. Wyden and Tinder would figure out what that would be. It would take months. And all of a sudden, you know, it would, it would launch. Now Coke just launches that directly to the platform partnered. Tinder answers it. They work with Coke directly. So lots of interesting things to think about. And these are just some of them. ICA does a bunch of uh, kind of planning and, and strategy. Obviously, Tongle, the, the, the video. Topcoder is a really great one. We're, we're using them on a local motor project for, uh, for Airbus right now. Um, and they're doing all the code. They're writing all the code for the platform. Really, really great platform to write, to write code and do kind of hardcore, hardcore you know, product development or, 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 you know, coding. So anyway, uh, that's all I have. Thanks. Any questions? What's up? Speakeasy Guild. Speakeasy Guild. Yeah, sorry. We just always shorten it. Speakeasyguild.com. Sure. Oh, you want it? Oh, sure. So how how do you um, monetize Speakeasy? How does we take a we take a we take a cut of it? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. And the company that amazes me is GLG, Gerstner Lair Group, that has a crowd of four hundred thousand um, experts and thirty thousand subscribers. And Speakeasy is a subscriber based business. Um, they're they're um, they're doing close to five hundred million dollars in revenue, um, just matching matching folks. So so that's what we're really focused on. We, you know, we've got kind of four levels. One is you know, you need to talk to the world's expert on ad blocking. You can find that person for a one-hour conversation to help you fight the right 
partner to be a CTO in the future. So. And, and who's, who's in charge of doing that matching within Speakeasy? I mean, that, so that has to be a pretty big job, just finding the right teams and all that. Yeah. You know, we've started very organically because we have a very, very big network ourselves. And, and um, I think there's been a lot of failure from a business design standpoint for people to focus too much on the supply and the technology versus the demand. So we've really been focused on the demand and, and, and forming these teams. It's, you know, these days it's pretty easy, right? I mean, what, what's LinkedIn's new platform called? Do you guys know? The open platform? You know what that is, John? It's called Preferred. Essentially, it's a crowd platform, right? If you're on LinkedIn, you can sign up, and then, and then companies can launch projects into it. So it's the same thing. So anyway, I, I think there's lots of good tools to, to, to find the talent, right? We're just trying to figure out how to API all that, API all that in. Oh, I'm sorry. Thanks. Um, just kind of curious about how this open system works whenever the brand is less than a sexy brand to work on. Right. You know, whether it's B2B clients or, or, uh, or something that's just kind of obscure that's just not going to have the draw that some of the brands that you've mentioned have. I mean, does, does this still work? Because, you know, the outcome certainly depends on, uh, well, it's kind of a numbers game to some, to some extent, making sure that you've got the, the right talent to supply some of the possible creative options? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's still, you know, I, I mean, hey, the, you know, the job of a great agency is to curate, like, what work is that? You know, what's the great work? What's the great strategy? Who's that senior leadership? Doesn't matter if there's, you know, 100 people in the crowd or three people in a creative department. I mean, we, we saw that a lot, you know, we try to use, just as a proof of concept, um, that, I don't know if you guys saw the cover of uh, New York Times Magazine last year, last January. It was the marketing of broccoli. We did that work. And, you know, our crowd then, we, we thought about it more of not a crowd as in crowdsourcing, but an expert crowd. So how do we get, you know, broccoli, uh, uh, you know, chefs and, you know, school lunch ladies, um, farmers? You know, how do we put this creative group of people together as our creative department and then use our creative directors to let, lead them through the process of ideating? So, I mean, open systems, we just got a lot of power out of that kind of broad system. You could look at it as, you know, typically as a research function, but we kind of take that way further into ideation and things like that. We did at BNS. Yeah, just a couple quick questions. Uh, first yeah. of all, I've been talking to these wonder guys. They've called me a couple times. Have they? Yes, they want 20 grand, which is not a bad number, but it does come out to about what you said per search. But that, basically, you can have, you know, X number of searches a year, unlimited, every question you possibly have, and they... They showed examples, so it's pretty detailed what they. they it's give interesting because the guys at Blood just—I mean, I, I, they didn't pay twenty grand up front. I think that Wonder's small enough where they're just doing it as as a well, per question. Thing. Uh, I'm going to tell them when they call yeah, me back. Yeah, you should. Twenty-nine dollars. Yeah, just say twenty thousand. I mean, I'll say John said so. Yeah, yeah that's buy good. before you try, right? That's, I mean, that seems that's, like a good—that's a good thing, right? Buy before you try. I don't know how it works. Yeah, and there's all, all, also that thing called Clarity FM. Have you guys seen that? It's where you pay by the minute, and you can, you know. You can get, you know, I don't know, you can get, get people like, oh, who's the guy from, you know, he was on last night, or Mark Cuban. You can get a minute of Mark Cuban's time for like $1,000 a minute, or Brad Feld's on there for 300 bucks a minute, or you can get, you know, somebody with a brand status for 10 bucks a minute, but it's all by the minute. I just think there are interesting open systems, right, that allow for new access to people. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want to do the last question, Andine? Different, but related, I think. Um, Best Buy's new announcement about um, 
listing crowd-funded products. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have a thought about that or yeah, I think the that's, start of something new. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great thing. I, I think that that's going to be part of the ecosystem of launching project, products, right? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, I mean, at Radar, we used to do that work. We used to do the research and strategy of new product development. And, you know, the money that you put into that, like instead of doing these kind of, you know, long, heavyweight innovation projects, right now with 3D printing, you can go so much faster. You can do iterations, put them up on these crowd these crowdfunding platforms and see which ones will pre-sell, right? I think that's just part of the new open ecosystem, allow companies to really become much more lightweight as brands. Um, I, I, we've always been looking for ways to, to use you know, funding platforms. Just haven't found the right one. But I think I would encourage all of us to figure that out, right? That's, what a great way to help a client launch something new is to get their customers to pay for it before they even launch it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so another, another thing to think about. Thanks for bringing that up. I think that's a super interesting case study. I don't have the ball, but I got the mic real quick. Uh, Doug Zanger from the drum. Um, John, I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. I, 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 John is, I just reached out to John a couple of weeks ago when I saw what was, he was going on with Speakeasy Guild, and I said, I've got some room on the agenda. Will you come? And we hadn't seen each other in a while. We, we saw each other, unfortunately, in a, a situation we didn't, uh, someone passed, um, and we didn't get a chance to connect. Um, he's been very gracious with his time. Uh, anytime I've reached out to him, he's been there. And like, if you see him in the hall, grab him and talk to him because and be a sponge. Um, I, I think that many of the things he's put forth to us, we need to truly, truly embrace. Um, the the notion and the wording around being lightweight uh, for those of us, the independent agencies who want to be nimble, I think it's great language for us to think about. I hadn't used, thought it, had it heard used that way, that way before, said that way before. We've always talked about let's not hire a lot of people, but lightweight implies more than just cost savings. There's an ability and agility to it that I think that we can learn from. So um, if you get any chance to spend some time with him, even if it's five minutes, I encourage you to do so. so but I, I just want to add one thing, because John and I were talking, and one of the reasons I was super psyched to come, because I've always been a small business guy, and, and I love startups, and I love small companies, and I love the culture of them, and, and I've had more than one company ruined by Condé Nast and Havas, and, and so I've kind of seen both sides of the situation, and I feel like, you know, you guys are the future. Like, small businesses are the future. You guys are a network, and, and it's really cool. It's this amalgamation of wonderful people and wonderful cultures and localization, and you guys know the culture better. It's it, what's going to make it work in a huge way for, for you guys in this room is how you connect with each other, how you share, and how open you are to each other, because it's, it will be unstoppable. And these holding companies have that huge bureaucratic cost of executives making multi-million dollars doing absolutely nothing. So I think the future is yours and just trying to figure out how do you work together with John and, and the organization to be more collaborative and more open. So thanks for having me.